Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Today, we're going to be talking about ESG investing, environmental, social, governance-based investing. In the past, we've called this SRI, impact investing, values-based investing, all kinds of different things. But the idea is how can a socially conscious investor do well, both broadly for society and the world, but also for their portfolio? It's really an area that's become tremendously important and central to the investment landscape over the last 12 years. Joining me is Dr. Linda Elling Lee, Global Head of ESG Research at MSCI. Linda has published pieces in the Harvard Business Review and MIT's Sloan Business Review. It has been quoted as a foremost expert on ESG and sustainable investing in outlets like the Financial Times, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Forbes. So, Linda, thank you so much for being here today. It's great to be here, Tony. And then secondly, I want to welcome from Wilmington Trust, Steve Norsini, who is a senior portfolio manager and the manager of the Wilmington Trust ESG equity strategy. Steve, it's great to have you here as well. Hey, thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me here. Before we begin today, I do want to just mention that the insights expressed in our conversation are not intended to be specific investment recommendations. Before we begin today, I do want to just mention that the insights expressed in our conversation are not intended to be specific investment recommendations. And also a reminder that WealthWise is a nonpartisan forum and we take no political position one way or the other. Linda, let's take a minute perhaps to start by talking a bit about, I've mentioned an alphabet soup of terms that are used in the the socially conscious investment space. And there seem to be two terms in particular that have had a lot of staying power. One is this ESG term, which seems to be the state-of-the-art term. And the other one is SRI, which was probably the term for at least a decade, but not used as much. Maybe we could start off by um, maybe you giving us just a bit of a baseline on what these two terms are really intended to cover and how people should be thinking about them. Well, I think the best way to make sense of these different names and different approaches is actually to really distinguish between two motivations. So traditionally, what has been called socially responsible investing, or SRI, uh, that typically is referring to investments that use environmental, social, and governance inputs to align what an individual investor's personal preferences are with what's actually held in their portfolio. So in practice, the typical um, way to do that would be to exclude or screen out companies associated with businesses or practices that you might not like, you know, whether that's tobacco or guns or coal. Uh, And you really can actually screen on anything, but these motivations are personally driven and not financially driven. Now, what I would call modern-day ESG investing, that's really investment-driven rationale to incorporate ESG factors into investment decisions. So regardless of who the investor actually is and what his or her personal preferences might be about a particular environmental social topic, it's actually becoming more and more evident to investors around the world that there are a set of ESG risks that can impact how well a company performs financially that they need to consider. And that's why you're seeing this growth in sustainable um, investments. It's because investors are using these ESG inputs as an additional set of information about companies that can help them reduce risks and improve returns. Um, So, you know, in short, SRI really is typically being used to refer to values-based investing and ESG is 
currently being used to refer to more value-driven investing. Um, now, at the outset, you also had mentioned this term impact investing, and I really do think this might be one that uh, your listeners will probably hear more about because it is gaining traction as well. And impact investing is really referring to targeting investments that can add a measurable positive impact on a particular issue that investors might care about. So that could be something like um, providing clean drinking water to people with access. So like SRI, what gets targeted for that positive impact depends on what the individual investor really cares about. When you think about evaluating companies for their environmental profile or their social profile or their strength of their governance, a discipline in and of itself, in a sense. So if I'm a portfolio manager and I want to construct or build a portfolio of companies and I want to be focused on companies that score well, that do well from the perspective of these criteria, I can either spend a lot of time evaluating not only the traditional metrics of the company or I can rely on a third-party neutral arbiter. And that's one of the ways that MSCI comes in. But as a portfolio manager, we actually use a service that you provide where we can look at any listed company and you're not buying or selling these companies. But what you do is you look at these companies and you evaluate them and you score them based on these criteria. Can you just talk a little bit about how complex that process is of figuring out which companies are in fact the, the do-wellers of the world? So the world of ESG data is is vast and complex, and it's actually in many ways full of holes as well, because this is an area where it's not like financial disclosure that are regulated, right? So this is why this is actually a very exciting space for everyone to be working in, because what you're really trying to find and what you're trying to systematize is a set of information that not every single um, investor has already been looking at, and it really augments your information set when you are um, constructing portfolio or evaluating companies. And so I think in terms of the complexity, um, yes, the complexity really comes from the fact that different industries have very different environmental, social, and governance risks that they um, have to manage um, well. And and those are going to be very different across industries. And therefore, when you are um, evaluating a utility company versus a food company, you really should be looking at a different set of uh, ESG-related topics. Um, And so I think that is actually one challenge. And then the other is around information. And information means that, um, you know, it typically a long time ago meant that you were really just looking at companies' um, disclosure on these topics, which they don't do very well. But what has been very exciting over the last um, couple of years is that with the advent of data science and alternative data sets um, and machine learning and AI, we're now able to get so much more information about companies on these topics that we can measure their exposure to these risks without necessarily relying on uh, company disclosure. Linda, can doing good be tantamount to doing well? Do you think that it's sustainable to build portfolios that are both designed to do good in the world, but also do well for investors from a performance standpoint? Well, I think that this is probably one of the perennial questions that people have, or perhaps an assumption that somehow you have to sacrifice returns um, if you're involved in any type of sustainable investing. And I do have to say that I think that's quite an outdated notion because anyone who has looked at the research, and there's the volumes of research now and the track record, can tell you that 
uh, there is quite a lot of nuance and sophistication and, and therefore actually a lot of opportunity um, in terms of using and understanding how ESG factors could actually um, help improve uh, financial performance. One evidence is really around the track record of ESG ratings, which, as we said, um, is used quite widely as a core input into ESG investing. So our research team at MSCI have published a series of studies that uses 13 years of MSCI's ESG ratings history. And over those 13 years, you can see that companies that are better at managing their industry-specific ESG issues have been more profitable They have paid more dividends. They have faced lower company-specific risk incidents. They have lower systematic risks compared to the companies that have been um, industry laggards in managing those um, those ESG risks. You can go and look at the live track record of ESG indexes. And um, and you'll see that over a long period of time now, many of them are now ranging at least a decade, um, systematically con- selecting or overweighting the industry leaders on the key achievements in their industry. They generated better long-term returns than their benchmarks. And, um, and in fact, the longest-running index that has a social screen, which is the uh, MSCI KLD 400 index, it's just marked its 30-year anniversary, and that has slightly outperformed its benchmark over 30 years. So if you don't want to read studies, you can go, actually go and check out some live track um, performance um, of a wide range of ESG indexes that are out there. And then finally, I think a really important piece of evidence, you know, is really coming from some advances that we're making in portfolio attribution analysis. So there are uh, investors who assume that any kind of performance impact, you know, outperformance that you're getting from ESG funds or ESG indexes is coming, for example, from maybe you're excluding energy stocks, which have not done very well, as we know, or maybe you have overweighted healthcare or tech uh, tech sector stocks, which we know have been doing much better. So it's really more of a sector bet that you've made and then not necessarily anything to do with the ESG or the ESG factor that you're bringing into your investment process. Um, but now we have these analytical tools to isolate where this performance comes from. And so when we use the MSCI's global equity model, and we can hold all these factors constant, so the sector and the geography and the currency and all the style factors like value, momentum, and so forth, you see that the outperformance of these ESG indexes are coming from the ESG factor having the largest contribution to explaining uh, the outperformance. And so these are just new tools and new techniques that, that I think is, are beginning to debunk some of this um, conventional thinking about ESG and, and having to give up returns. We at, here at Wilmington have thought about companies that have good governance, whether it means really strong leadership teams or the kinds of practices that exemplify taking care of their employees well or other things. But we've thought about those as really attractive properties for companies just for our, our traditional portfolios for many years. So. I really think it's more of a continuum, which is probably a good segue to bring Steve into the conversation. So, Steve, when you decided to take a lead in in launching our new ESG strategy, which has been up and running for about a little over six months now here at Wilmington, were you thinking that by more explicitly incorporating these kinds of value-based criteria, you'd actually get better returns? Or were you thinking that hey, let's build a portfolio that's going to help the world. And hopefully at the same time, we won't give up too much from a performance standpoint. So where were you in that spectrum? Yeah, thanks, Tony. So I definitely believe that um, 
we can put together a portfolio that will outperform on a risk-adjusted return basis. So um, when we when we think about investing here, especially on the equities team with our internal strategies, we're, we're investing in high-quality companies that we're going to think that we think are going to outperform over the long run. And certainly what we found was these same high quality companies that we looked at things like balance sheet leverage or return on invested capital. Uh, we found that a lot of them were sort of high ESG scoring companies. If you looked at MSCI scores or any of the other um, ESG providers, uh, scoring providers, it was pretty highly correlated. And uh, just to cut to the chase, when we did eventually launch the strategy of the 40 stocks in that portfolio, 30 of them were already in existing strategies. So we don't believe we we had to give up uh, risk-adjusted returns to get that. We just had to build out our process from an ESG perspective. So, Linda, let's take a look at the environmental, if you will, value of ESG, um, which is the E, of course. There's so much going on from a climate change perspective in the world, and there's a lot of data that shows that big corporations have played a huge part in contributing to global warming, and companies have been forced to adopt new practices and ways uh, by their shareholders and by their consumers to some degree. So what are the key things that, as investors, we should be thinking about and looking at? Is it carbon emission trading? Is it mainly energy companies? Because they're really the suppliers of the energy. How do we think about the energy dimension of ESG? I'm really glad you raised the issue of climate risk because it really is emerging as a top of mind issue for the institutional investors that we work with every day because they really see it as a systemic risk that they need to get a handle on. And so, um, you know, a critical aspect of climate risk as well as any of the ESG issues that, that investors and companies should be looking at is that there different industries face very different risks. And so for the energy sector in particular, that's very important because for large institutional investors, they have very diversified portfolios, so they have significant exposure to the energy sector. And what they're concerned about is that their fossil fuel assets could see very significant repricing in a world that transitions to an economy that will be either low carbon or even zero carbon. And so the way they think about it is that are their fossil fuel assets going to become uh, what's referred to as a stranded asset, right? What they're worried about is that their high-carbon assets are going to be displaced by by low-carbon ones. But it's not just the energy sector, as you point out. You really do actually have all sorts of other businesses. They are not emitting much carbon at all. But because of where they're located or their, their suppliers are located or where their customers are located, they might be facing risks from the changing climate that we can't actually yet fully anticipate at the moment. If we think about, for example, the the wildfires we've seen in California or in Australia that are becoming much more prevalent, those are those are examples of the kinds of physical risks that come from climate change that we're going to be facing more of as our, our weather changes. So, you know, whether it's your suppliers or your customers, they can be impacted by all sorts of things like storms or floods or severe drought, and and that of course can of course um, impact the bottom line of a lot of these companies. So, what we actually are beginning to see is that more companies across more sectors are beginning to kind of grapple with their risk exposure to these different dimensions uh, of climate risk. I've got a question that I always have to admit, I always debate this. I'm using that as a polite word for, you know, it's a euphemism for sort of a fight with my wife over, which is paper or plastic. So, you know, I'm one that 
hates the paper bags, so I always want to get the plastic. And I always read online that the plastic is better for the environment than the paper. So I don't know if you know the answer to that question, but the real question underlying it is that it's so hard for a consumer to know what the right thing to do is. We see products all the time that's stamped with some type of claim of environmental friendliness. And as a consumer, we want to do the right thing for the environment, but we don't trust the labels. We don't really know what to do. How is an investor to really know which companies are doing good for the environment versus the companies that aren't, that are just sort of, um, you know, greenwashing, if you will, to cover underlying bad behavior? How is that figured out? Yeah, that's a re- it is actually quite complicated, and I do not have a definitive answer for you on paper versus plastic because it is okay. true that <laughs> in one component you you're more carbon intensive, and the other you know you have other issues around waste and and um, and waste and for example the oceans, right? Those are slightly different aspects of the environment, um, and it's hard to make that trade off. And so with companies, uh, in terms of whether or not they are greenwashing, this is a very serious concern of investors. And so it does actually take quite a lot of um, systematic effort to assess companies. And we assess over 10,000 of them every year across various dimensions of climate risk, whether it's their exposure to carbon regulations or how much carbon they're emitting into the air and so forth. And so I think that for investors, what they have started to focus on is what companies are committed to doing in terms of reducing their carbon emissions. And on that score, you know, on the positive side, we are actually seeing some progress, right? We definitely see more companies making commitments to reduce their carbon emissions. So as an example, in 2015, I believe about 10% of the companies in the MSCI ACWI, that's the All Country World Index, you know, have made some type of public commitment to still going to reduce their carbon emissions. Now in 2020, five years later, we see now about 40% of these companies have made some type of reduction commitment. The flip side really is that um, when we look at their track record of the ones that have actually committed to, to cutting their emissions, it's actually not that awesome. Um, you know, now companies, of course, can set very easy targets to meet or they can set very tough targets to beat. You know, we, we can compare the stringency of those targets, but let's just kind of take them at their word and we set that aside and look at whether companies have been meeting their own reduction goals that they set for themselves. And when we've done that, uh, we're seeing that only about half of them actually meet the reduction goals that they set for themselves. So I do feel like this is one reason investors are getting a little impatient and you're seeing that many of them becoming more vocal or more active. They just don't feel like the companies in their portfolios are maybe paying sufficient attention or serious attention to mitigating climate risk. And I think that for companies, you know, they 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 are really looking at it very differently. There's a whole spectrum. There are some companies that are super committed, but there's also a lot of companies, as you say, they're probably um, doing maybe more than bare minimum. And I think that for these companies, one thing that I, I just need to raise is that I think they're going to start to face also secondary effects from regulatory pressure, which we're beginning to see. So um, central banks around the world, for example, they're already exploring how to incorporate climate into stress testing for financial institutions. And so the institutions that are lending to companies, they're going to start to probably pressure their own corporate clients to be disclosing more about their climate risk management, right? 
The other thing is that companies in Europe, um, the European regulators are putting in very stringent requirements around disclosure of carbon emissions and around what they define to be green assets and brown assets that they want companies to report on. Now, a lot of companies are obviously not European companies. They're now subject to these European disclosure requirements, but they're going to find that they're going to lag their European peers because once this type of data becomes part of the standard set of information that global investors are expecting to see, I think that they will also probably have to play some catch-up in, in this area. So it's all very complicated. So, Steve, let's talk about the S and ESG, which is the social aspect to it. It's a time in our, in our country where there's a tremendously heightened consciousness around the social aspects of anyone's behavior. And at the corporate level, we think about diversity, equal opportunity, fair treatment. How do you think about those issues when you are selecting companies for the portfolio? So what we're trying to do is to get a sort of a complete holistic picture of the company and their social characteristics, whether it's diversity, um, commitment to community. You know, we re- we're really looking for firms that are um, managing for all stakeholders. And we think if they do that, then they'll be managing, of course, for shareholder returns. So first thing we do is we look at just objectively dozens of different uh, criteria from a number of different data providers, of course, MSCI being one of them. So we don't we don't want any one factor sort of dominating the picture. We really want a more complete holistic view. So some examples are some of them are simple uh, percentage of minorities in the workforce, a ratio of women that are in senior management positions, uh, board composition from a diversity perspective is something we look at. So we try to get as much data as we can that is meaningful and we try to quantify it. But then we really do rely on and engage in more subjective analysis. So assessment of management, are they committed to these values? Are they truly managing to all stakeholders uh, for the long run? Or is it more of a short-term, more transactional nature with with the management team? So once we feel like we have the strategic vision uh, of the company in mind, where they're going to be in five or ten years, um, from the social standpoint, you know, then we start to check the boxes, of course, from an investment perspective to make sure it meets our, our standards from that, um, from that perspective. As far as, um, performance and why that matters, again, we're looking for robust, uh, strong companies that are going to outperform over the long run. And we, we do think generationally here, uh, at Wilmington Trust. And we think these types of companies, um, those are characteristics that more diverse companies, these large U.S. large cap companies that um, have invested in their people, invested in their customers, um, have cared about their communities. We think they are uh, in a better position to withstand certain shocks like this, whether it's COVID. And I think that's part of the reason we we saw ESG sort of outperform during the, the March sell-off. Uh, these are these tend to be sort of higher quality, look through the cycle type companies um, where how they manage their own workforce, um, what that workforce looks like. We do think diversity is part of that solution. And I think about the three characteristics, and I think they all blend into each other in in different respects. When we think about governance, Linda, we think a lot about the way the employees are treated, whether it be health insurance or the paternity policy, how much vacation you get, those types of things. Maybe just broaden it out for us a little bit and, and give us a sense of, what governance is, what is good governance. And then there, secondly, Linda, there's a 
a coterie of companies that I think were really held in high esteem for having really good governance, Nike, Target, maybe Apple, are they benefiting from the strength of that governance through the crisis in your your view? I think you're right that some aspects of the social and and the governance do kind of blend into each other. And I think that you really should think about the ESMG, you know, they're convenient categorizations that, that, that we actually use, right? There's not kind of some hard and fast boundary. And I think that um, the, the word that Steve was using around stakeholders, I think that that in particular is where you see kind of this umbrella of social and governance. And, and when we kicked off 2020, which now seems so long ago, one of the five ESG trends we were watching this year and that we spent a lot of time talking about was something around corporate purpose, right? And that companies are being called upon to state their corporate purpose and to reckon with this more stakeholder-centered way of operating. And then what we've seen the last couple of months is this acceleration of this trend and that investors and customers and, and, you know, the broad public are all super vigilant about how companies are treating their workers. To your question about governance um, and what's good governance, you know, when we step back in our research, we have traditionally always seen that stronger governed companies perform better. And by governance there, we're really talking typically more about board oversight and the quality of the board and CEO competition, as well as issues like bribery or ethics. Our most recent research, though, is showing that over a longer term and over multiple years, the issues that you've just raised and was talking to Steve about, things like managing the workforce or managing their health and safety, and, and these are issues we tend to categorize actually under the, the social um, category. These can actually unfold over a longer period of time. And the companies that do poorly on these issues, it really doesn't materializes into some big negative event that gets some sort of a big headline. But what it does is it erodes their performance more gradually over multi-year periods, but that overall impact ends up accumulating to have a similar or even a bigger difference in performance compared to the more traditional board governance type of issues. And so, you know, Tony, in the the wake of COVID, as you you, um, were just talking about, I think that we might see this kind of um, phenomenon play out a little bit more strongly, which is that, you know, companies that have a stronger baseline for managing stakeholder demands, um, they could be better positioned. And that's really contrasting against the companies that have weaker management of these issues, and they could be losing their competitiveness over time as their customers and their employees and so forth start to kind of alter their preferences to favor more trusted companies. Thanks, Linda. So, Steve and Linda, great thoughts today. Let me ask you each the same question just to see what your perspectives are on it because I think it's such an important one right now. Do you feel that there's a risk or how much of a risk might there be that there's been a wave of good performance in the ESG companies because of this shift in social consciousness, the millennials coming into the investment space, but that may be a transitory phenomenon and may not be able to be durable. Um, so I'd love to get, uh, maybe Steve, we'll start with you on this one, and then we'll give Linda the final word. So certainly it's been you know, a pretty powerful phenomenon, very popular. Whether or not, I mean, your question, I hope I'm not reading too much into it, but is it sort of a potential for a passing phase or some ESG bubble potentially formed where investors could potentially get hurt if they move into these strategies? You know, certainly 
I, I don't think we'd advocate blindly leaping into any ESG, just any, any ESG strategy. There needs to be a serious, sort of robust uh, valuation framework and and risk management framework behind behind any actively managed strategy. Uh, but then, just apart from that, if you just objectively look at the risk characteristics of many of these ESG portfolios, or certainly the more established ones, they all look pretty much like a standard sort of high quality, almost value tilted portfolios. They tend to be more mature companies, tend to be a little bit safer. Um, so that, that's not one of my concerns, actually. Linda, I'm not sure if you have a different opinion. When I think about trends, I think it's important to distinguish between the structural components and then the more cyclical component. And I think it's useful to try to think about that um, also for ESG in that context. So the way I would think about it is that the structural component of ESG are where we know that there are systemic shifts in the way that the world is changing, right? So the weather events we're talking about with climate change, the technology innovations around mitigating um, climate change, whether that's the electric vehicles or, or renewable energy, that's probably not going away. And, and so capital allocation is going to shift um, over the next decade to reflect those kind of changes. And I think of the same thing in terms of, say, social media and people's ability to know a lot more about company practices throughout the world. I mean, I think that we're seeing consumer demands for transparency and the public's uh, demand for higher standards of corporate practices, it's kind of hard to see a reversal of that. So those kinds of changes are actually altering the playing field for, for companies' ability to attract capital. So I think of that as being more structural. And then I think that there is a, a, um, a cyclical component where we know that ESG factors are more about resilience and about better risk management. And, and so they really should theoretically, right, you perform better in a risk-off environment and in the more volatile markets, which is what we've seen in the most recent period. I mean, ESG is just too encompassing to think about as one thing when there are these different um, underlying components and dynamics happening. Some really great insights today from both of you. I want to try to provide three key takeaways from today's conversation, which has been just fascinating. First is I want to say that um, I think that one of the things that I've learned today is that there's really a, a flavor of values-based investing for everybody, whether it's the exclusionary approach of SRI, whether it's the, let's really lean in and try to find the companies that are going to exemplify the values that I as an individual may have in the ESG space, whether it's a broad ESG portfolio or something potentially even customized for an individual investor or impact investing, which you've given us some great insights into, Linda. There's really a, a flavor or a stripe um, for everybody in the space. Second thing I would say is that there's been lots of great data cited by Linda and conviction from both of you, and I agree with it myself wholeheartedly, that the kinds of attributes of companies that fall in the ESG space specifically are in fact attributes that are very conducive to companies performing well, and that we expect to see that we're going to continue to have a essentially a secular structural ability, which are words that you use, I thought quite 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 well. And thank you for that. For companies to perform to outperform by scoring well on a relative basis in the ESG space, and I think that's really exciting. Uh, and over time, and this is the third point, I think that we're going to find that a majority of investors are going to demand. Uh, or require, whether they're institutional investors, family investors, or even retail investors, especially, as I mentioned, with, with millennials coming 
very forcefully into the investment arena, um, that they're going to demand that companies behave in a certain way and that you're going to continue to see for really an extended period of time this tailwind of more money really going into ESG strategies. And so to the extent that it may have been sort of a cyclical phenomenon, it's going to be a very long cycle and there's going to be a very long tail, if you will, to the ESG type of companies um, that score well, performing well in addition from an investment standpoint. So thank you again, Linda and Steve, for your insights today. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. It's been a great discussion. It's been really, really exciting, and we feel really fortunate to have you both um, with us today. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through m Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by m Bank, member FDIC. 2021 m Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved.